Wow, we've been talking about a lot of things over the last few weeks that have to do with the difficulties that we're all facing, have to do with the difficulties just in dealing with life and life on life's terms lately. So we've been dealing with themes like grace and themes like presence and others. And I wanted to continue that and move in a little bit different direction this morning and kind of get us started. There was Sometimes it's things during the week that really strike me, and they create kind of, uh, I don't know, just sort of markers and milestones along the way of, of uh, what I want to try to get across. I think it was a Friday night. Mary and I were um, spinning the dial, and we came across a documentary. <laughs> I guess I did and made her watch it. Um, but it was about this teenage hacker who hacked Twitter earlier this year. And I don't know if any of you even know about that or heard about it. I hadn't until I saw this. And a 17-year-old from Florida who had been a hacker for, for years, doing lots of scamming and different things and made tons of money, um, hacked into Twitter. And he, he got a hold of uh, the, the accounts of Barack Obama and Joe Biden and just all these huge celebrities and was running a scam through that. And of course, they finally caught him. And this was kind of about his story. But what struck me about it was this kid was making so much money that he literally didn't know what to do with it. But there was one scene of him going to a club and uh, with several of his friends who were also scammers, and they had all bought Rolex watches. So you know, anything about Rolex watches, these things can be $45,000, $50,000 or more. And they took the, <laughs> they ordered the most expensive bottle of champagne, which in itself cost hundreds of dollars. They held their arms out, and they poured the champagne on the Rolex watches. Now, I'd never seen anything like that before, and it was kind of breathtaking if you think about it. Not only in the extravagance of the money that it represented, but in the total disregard for what that money represented. It was just, it was amazing to me. And what came to mind were actually Judas's words when he said, hey, you know, that could have been sold and given to the poor, you know. And, and of course, Jesus rebukes him for that. But in this case, there was really no saving grace to what they were doing. I'm just thinking, Wow. How do people, especially so young, 17, get so far off track in terms of their view of life? The sensibility they have toward getting through life, maybe is a better way to put it. Then yesterday, I got an email from a couple that have been friends of Marion and mine for, for years now. And they themselves have been 40 years in ministry work and music and so on and so forth. And the email was that they wanted to start simplifying their life. They've been talking together, and they realized they really need to simplify. And one of the things that they were going to do is shut down their nonprofit, their 501c3 organization. And when you do that, any of the proceeds that are left in the account have to be distributed to another 501c3, and they were offering that to us, to the effect, which was, which was great. But as I was answering the email and thinking about this, I'm thinking, wow, Look at the difference between these two poles. You know? One of them doesn't know what to do with the money and just blows it, you know, literally burns it. And then another ones that are trying to continue to do something good, even as they're trying to roll their lives down, to move down into a quieter space. How do we come to see life so differently? And when you think about it, we're all trying to do the same thing, aren't we? 
We're all trying to figure out how to live life well. I guess we're trying to figure out how to live the good life, quote unquote, but look at how differently we define what good life means, what living well means. I've been thinking about that. And I think it has something to do with the metaphors that we use. Because sometimes big abstract concepts like the good life, like even success or living well, if you just try to define that, it's difficult. But metaphors allow you to be able to non-verbally speak right to your emotions. To non-verbally, an image can bring something maybe even to your subconscious that clicks, that allows you to see a way forward, to conceptualize in a way beneath your mind that does all of the, you know, the calculations and the differentiations and all of that. It just gives you a sense of what this thing is about. Metaphors are really powerful. They get under your skin. They become interwoven with your sense of reality. And in fact, they actually can shape your perception of reality if you allow them really in. Very powerful, for better or worse. So we've got to pay attention to our metaphors, the ones that maybe we don't even realize that we're using or are in place for the basic things of life, as in how do we view life, which means we need to take the time to identify the metaphors that we're actually using because they are shaping our perception of reality, allowing us to move into these so different places. So for a 17-year-old hacker, the good life is what? Las Vegas, man? Is that, what, is that the metaphor that he's got for the good life? You know? The money, the celebrity, the power, the recognition, is, is that the metaphor that he's using or something like it? That once it's in place, once it's, it's really ingrained into his psyche, that everything is justified to get to that place, to get to Las Vegas? And for a couple with 40 years of ministry under their belt, the good life is what? I'm thinking Piedmont, South Dakota. How many of you have heard of Piedmont, South Dakota? I see no hands coming up. The reason I bring up Piedmont is that Marion and I had a, a couple of friends that we were really good with friends with about 15 years ago, and they got so, I guess, spun around, disillusioned, and, and burned out with their lives, their work, their jobs, Southern California, that they sold their condo, they sold everything they could sell, put the rest in storage, and got a, an RV. And they said, we're just going to just drive across the United States, visit people we haven't seen for a while, and see if there's some place that we want to live. And they did that. They went north up to the northwest, and they cut across, and they got as far as Piedmont, South Dakota. And that's where they've been for the last 15 or so years. And it's rural, and it's, it's near Rapid City, but it's outside. At the last census, it had a population of, are you ready for this? 222. <laughs> and if you look at her Facebook page, she's got horses, and it snows, and it does this. It's right at the foot of the Black Hills. It's near Rushmore. And it's a completely different life, and they love it. And so for a 40-year-old couple in ministry, if the metaphor for their life, or the one that they're moving into, is Piedmont, South Dakota, then what is that telling us about what they're looking for? 
as opposed to the money and the power and the celebrity, the glamour. How about simplicity? How about humility? How about simple connection? In the busyness and the trying to keep everything afloat, they probably lost a real sense of connection, and they're trying to get it back. Don't you want to know how to live life well? I mean, I do. Do you have a good definition of what the good life and, and living well is? Have you have a, do you have a sense of what your metaphor is? If you don't know what your metaphor is, look at the things that you chase. Look at the things that you put in the priority in your life. Where do you spend most of your time? That's going to tell you. Are you tending toward Las Vegas? Are you tending toward Piedmont? Are you somewhere in between? You know? And if we believe, if we believe that this good life, if living well, has got to have a spiritual component, has got to be connected with our spirituality and spiritual principles, then our metaphor needs to reflect that as well. And as soon as we move into spiritual areas, we've got to use metaphors. The spiritual language is metaphor because you can't approach spirituality directly. There's no way to be able to do that. These principles are not cognitive. They're extra cognitive. They stand outside of everything that we would use to describe them. And so metaphor is the only way that we can actually take a look at what living life looks like, what the good life looks like in God's eyes, in the Father's eyes. Jesus' metaphor, Jesus never answers a direct question. We've talked about that over and over again. Jesus never tries to describe this life that he is trying to model, live, and show in anything except metaphor. And he gives those metaphors that will speak non-verbally directly to our spirits to give us something that we can really use. Jesus' metaphors evoke the experience of living well, of the good life in God's eyes. And, of course, Jesus has a central metaphor for a life well-lived. We've talked about this over and over again. You have to. If you're really going to talk about Jesus in any serious way, you've got to talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' central metaphor for a life well-lived. In his language, in Aramaic, Malkutha Dashmaya, or Malkutha Dalaha, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we've talked about this over and over again because... We misunderstand. And Jesus knew that the people of his day would misunderstand. And so he gives this central metaphor. And he understood that words would tell part of the story. Because Malkutha does not mean a kingdom in the way that we think of kingdom, a territory or a place. The closest English word that we have to the idea of Malkutha is reign, R-E-I-G-N, as in the reign of the king or the reign of the queen. It's the principles by which the king rules. So it's not a place, but it's a quality. A quality of life, a quality of relationship between the king and the king's people. And in that quality lies everything that Jesus is trying to get across to us. But Jesus still knew that the people would misunderstand, both then and I suppose now as well. Every generation misunderstands. For the people of his time, they were looking for a physical kingdom, a political kingdom. For us now, we think of kingdom as heaven of the afterlife. And for Jesus, it's neither. And it's sort of both at the same time. 
got to get away from that dualistic thinking. It's not either or. It's both and at the same time. He knows that we're going to misunderstand, so he gets right to work. He just doesn't give that one central metaphor and think that that's really going to do the work. That's really going to get this across. His whole ministry, if you really look at it, is the teaching and the showing and the living of the kingdom of a life well-lived in God's eyes. Now, we've been taught not to mix metaphors, right? <laughs> you don't mix metaphors because it weakens the idea, right? it weakens the, the, the image that you're trying to get across. You know, kind of like saying, you're not the sharpest cookie in the jar. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? We're mixing our metaphors here. So what we want to do is take a look at what Jesus is doing because maybe he's not exactly mixing metaphors, but he's certainly laying and layering up metaphors. He's piling up metaphor, metaphor after metaphor after metaphor, story after story, trying to get as many lights on over people's heads as he's teaching them, as he's working with them, as he's living with them, over and over and over. What we want to do this morning, what I would like to hope that you want to do this morning, is to mix his metaphors up to take a look at them and see how he's looking at kingdom and layer those up as well and see if it gives us a clearer way forward, a way that we can move forward and understand how is it that we can live this life well? How is it that we can follow this way of Jesus to kingdom? There's a, a woman that works with Richard Rohr. Her name is uh, Cynthia Bourgeau, and she has a, a little quote here. That I think she captured it pretty well. The way she puts it is this, the kingdom of heaven... <coughs> is really a metaphor for, the, for a state of consciousness. The kingdom of heaven is a metaphor for a state of consciousness. It's not a place you go to, but a place you come from. Think about that for a second. Kingdom is not a place you go to. It's a place you come from. It's a state of consciousness. It always moves from inside to outside. Always. All of Jesus' images show that. It's within. It's moving from inside to outside. It's not a place you go to. It's a place you come from. It's a whole new way of looking at the world, a transformed awareness that literally turns this world into a different place. You don't die into it. You awaken from it. Great lines here. We think it's heaven now not heaven of the next life. You don't die into it. You awaken into it. The hallmark of this awareness is that it sees no separation, not between God and humans and not between humans and other humans. And these are indeed Jesus' two core teachings underline everything he says and everything he does. So the kingdom is a state of consciousness. The kingdom is a quality of life. And that state of consciousness is that which sees no separation. And remember, separation is sin, biblically. Sin is separation. So this state of consciousness sees no sin, sees no separation between us and God, between us and each other. It sees a oneness of everything and everyone, everything connected. Imagine just for a second, awakening and being able to see the interconnectedness of everything. Literally being able to see those connection points. This web of interconnectivity that connects every one of us to everything that is, every other living thing, to God's spirit. To sense that, 
to be able to see that. I remember Neo certain, suddenly being able to see the Matrix, remember? You can see all the numbers if you that movie. Imagine being able to see in that state of consciousness to be aware of this interconnection. How did Jesus put it, this interconnection? This idea that there is no separation between us and God and us and each other. At Matthew 22, verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's being tested now by some doctors of the law to try to put him in a box. And Jesus says to them, says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And understanding that love at its deepest core level is not a behavior, not a feeling, but the understanding of your identification with the other, your complete oneness with the other, that there is no separation, there's no daylight between you. You are two sides of the same coin. Once that identification, once that oneness is perceived, everything flows from that. How do you treat yourself? You'll automatically treat the other because they're an extension of yourself, essentially. Love God that way. See no disconnect. See God and you as one. See your neighbor and you as one. New consciousness, seeing the connection, moving into kingdom. Love is the consciousness of kingdom, if you want to think of it that way. Love is the engine of kingdom. It's what makes it go. It's what sustains it. And so we got a question here. How do we awaken into this transformed state? I mean, I want to know that. I'd hope you would want to, too. It's great to say this stuff, but how do we do it? Is there a practical way that we can actually do this? Two of Jesus' metaphors may clarify what he's talking about may clarify other metaphors that he uses that we need to take a look at and help us to start to map a way forward. So take a look at Matthew 13, starting at verse 31. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And then right after that, verse 33 following, he spoke another parable to them. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. You know what leaven is? The yeast, right? Which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, if you take a look at those two parables, one that comes right out of the garden again, right? And the other that comes right out of daily life. When Jesus was talking about kingdom, he was always talking about images of daily life. It was filled with gardeners and farmers and fishermen and women just preparing food, shepherds. All the images came right out of their lives, the simplicity of their lives, something that they could connect with. And when you take a look at these two, what is the commonality between the two of them? Both the seed and the leaven start as something tiny, something hidden, something actually invisible to our eyes, and then grows to huge proportions, grows in a way that can't be controlled, can't be contained. 
The mustard seed, as a plant itself, is a seed that germinates almost immediately. As soon as it goes into the water and gets the right conditions, it germinates and it grows really fast. Marion and I planted some blackberries once in our backyard and they took over the entire yard. There was nothing you could do about these things. You'd rip them out, they'd come back in again. Mustard seed is the same way. It'll take over any area that you put it in and it will just grow and grow and grow. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. This is the image he's trying to get across. The same thing with the yeast, the leaven that you put into the lump of flour, the dough. No matter where you put it, it's going to take over the entire lump, leaven it, and cause it to rise. It's going to leave no place untouched. You see where Jesus is going with these two, laid side by side. And when something is side by side, they're meant to be seen as interconnected. There is a quality to kingdom that is a now and also a not yet. Now, we've made a big deal about always talking about kingdom as being right now. And that's true, obviously. Kingdom is right now. But at the same time, it's not yet. And this is something maybe we haven't spent enough time on. I think it was enough to try to pull the pendulum back from the not yet just to get it somewhere in the middle. But now we've got to talk about the not yet part as well. Kingdom and life well lived are experienced in two ways at the same time. And both are critical to being able to experience the fullness of kingdom. First, it's as something that is unseen, deep within. But it's also as something big that's coming, something big that's becoming, something now and something always coming at the same time. Here's another paradox. Here's another both and that we need to deal with. Life is full of both ends. Jesus' message is made of both ends. To be able to see things unitively, to be able to see things as one thing, that's that raised consciousness. Always trying to get us to break down our ideas of either or, this and that. Because our nature is to pick one or the other. It's either all now or it's all then. But it can't be both at the same time, right? And yet kingdom and a well-lived life requires both to keep that paradox and hold it in one embrace. So with that in mind, let's take a look at a couple other metaphors. Jesus gives us the metaphor of the child, right? Take a look at Matthew 19, starting at verse 13. The little children were brought to Jesus that he should put his hands on them and pray. So imagine this scene in the village. Jesus is teaching, and the mothers come up with their children, and they want Jesus to put their hands on it, put his hands on them, to pray for them, to bless them. But his handlers, the disciples, rebuked them, rebuked the mothers, sent the children away. And Jesus is incensed, of course, and he says, allow the little children to come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know how it's, it's uh, reading for you right now on the screens. You know, Brandon probably used the NASB. I read from the King James. But the truth of the matter is that if it says the kingdom belongs to such as these, the word belongs is not in the original text. The original text literally says the kingdom of heaven is of this sort. Jesus is making a direct metaphor here. He's making a direct statement here, even. The kingdom of heaven is 
this child? Is this person who lives this way, who understands and perceives this way? The kingdom doesn't belong to them. They are the kingdom. We got to get that connection. They are the kingdom. And when we think about the word that Jesus used that I've said over and over here, the talia of the Aramaic language, it's not just child, but at the same time, that word means the bondservant or the domestic slave. And so when you put the two of those together, we've talked about how that completes the idea of someone who's living in kingdom. Someone who has the, the absolute dependence and the wonder and the energy and, and seeing everything for the first time quality of the child, but lacks the volition lacks the ability to choose of the servant. The servant has the humility and the service that he or she chooses to do. But now looked at through the lens of the mustard seed and the leaven, we see also that the child is now, the servant is still not yet. The servant is yet to come. The child can grow into the servant as he or she develops. But that's up to the child, isn't it? that hidden place, if that going to move forward in a way that gives birth to the servant. Now, and still not yet, but retaining the qualities of both at all times. The other metaphor that we've used and talked about, that Jesus used, that we've talked about so much, is about the Hebrew bride. We've talked about her a lot in here. We talked about the Hebrew wedding tradition where there was a betrothal, which was as good as a marriage in the sense that you needed a divorce to get out of it, that marriages were arranged, that most of the time brides and grooms didn't even meet them each other until the day of their betrothal when the marriage was already you know, in place, but that there could be a year to two years before the actual wedding took place and the marriage was consummated. And the young bride, who was probably only 12 or 13 years old, actually started her new life as the head of her own household to have children of her own a brand new life that she could only imagine. And in that year or two years of betweenness, between the betrothal and the marriage, how is she supposed to live between what's now and what's not yet? Between the betrothal and the marriage in this space. And since Israel was understood as the bride of Yahweh and the church has been understood as the bride of Christ, we are seeing ourselves literally in that betweenness. This life right now is in that betweenness, between now and not yet, between betrothal and marriage, between birth and death. This space that we're all occupying, the only space we'll ever occupy breathing in these bodies, is always in that state of betweenness, now and not yet. The necessity of the bride to maintain the sense that even as she anticipates her new life to come and all that's going to mean to her, it'll come at the expense of the life that she has now when she leaves her family, the only family she's ever known, to stay present, to stay completely absorbed in these relationships, even as you sweetly and excitedly anticipate the life to come now and not yet. That's the awareness that Jesus is talking about, that everything is one thing, everything connects. But once again, how does she do it? How does the bride achieve that? And see, I think this is where 
we have to return to the metaphor we talked about last week, the metaphor of the gardener. And I was talking to somebody yesterday, a good friend of mine, and he said, you know, I was thinking about your message last time, last week, and you were talking about the gardener, but you know, it's really not the gardener, it's the farmer. The farmer is the one who has to get up every single day and do the things you're talking about. You know, gardeners here, they just kind of, they do it, it's a hobby, you know. And he was right. I chose to focus on gardener rather than farmer because when we think of farmers now, they're big industrial sort of things. Like they got tractors and trailers and all this kind of stuff, you know, and big combines and it's a big business, agribusiness and all of this. And the gardener is still the simple image of one person tending the soil. But he's right. In our culture, the gardener is more of the hobbyist or the dilettante. And so here's the thing that we need to understand. If, this, if Jesus' metaphor is going to work for us, whether you use gardener or farmer, it has to be a subsistence gardener or farmer. You know what I mean by that? It means they are living off of what they grow, that what they grow is essential to their subsistence, to their lives. This means something to them. If their crops fail, they're in a world of hurt. When you take a look at all the festivals of the ancient world, you know what those were? They were agricultural festivals. They were praying that God brought the rains. They were praying that God took the rains away. They were praying that God gave the, 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 enough sunshine and everything so that their crops wouldn't fail because if they did, they were dead. We have no clue as to what it meant to put a seed in the ground and pray that it grows and to have to get up every single day to make sure that everything is just right, that nothing goes wrong, that nothing impedes that harvest. So yes, my friend was right. Gardner's probably not strong enough, but I think you get the point now. I like the image of the ancient farmer, the one who is tilling his own soil for his own family and to barter and trade with for other things that other people are producing in his village, in his town. But yes, this idea of the, of the gardener has to be the subsistence gardener. And that's because the subsistence gardener can't take any days off just because he or she feels like it. They have to keep showing up. They must show up. Life depends on showing up. And yet at the same time, this gardener has to know that he or she is not in control. Not really. As much work as, you, as they do, as much as that showing up on a day-to-day -day basis happens, they're still not in control. This is what we read last week, Mark 4, verse 26. And Jesus was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces a crop all by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because a harvest has come. He does all the prep work. He brings everything together for the possibility of growing. But then all he can do is go to bed and go to sleep. Because what happens in that hidden tiny place, that invisible place under the ground, he knows nothing about. But as soon as it matures, then he flies back into action and takes the harvest. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. We're not in control. 
even though the daily work and the commitment and the dedication that it takes has to be disciplined and absolute. But still there's a sense of humility, of dependence, of vulnerability, of gratitude, and simply living a very simple life. This is how we can live well. This is how we can live with a minimum of fear. This is how we can live with a maximum of presence to what we're actually doing. This is how we can live with trust. And this is how we can live with gratitude. To have that daily discipline to show up to the smallest of things. To do the diligent work, but still realize we're not in control. The most important things, the real miracles of life, the things that we depend on, happen while we're sleeping. To show up every day to simple principles. It's what we dedicate ourselves to when no one is looking, when no one is recognizing our work, when no one is rewarding us for the things that we do, but we keep showing up anyway because it's who we are. And we know that these things are important. And it doesn't matter who sees or who doesn't see. We wouldn't be happy if we weren't showing up and doing what we know how to do every single day. Another one of Jesus' metaphors that we don't get in the way that I think it was being delivered is right at Matthew 5, 9. This is right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what do you think about when you think of a peacemaker? Maybe you think of shuttle diplomacy. Maybe you think of, of diplomats going and, and helping nations be able to resolve their disputes. Maybe you think of someone who flies in and breaks up a fight. There's lots of things that we can think about in terms of what a peacemaker is to us in our culture. And a peacemaker tends to be celebrated. A peacemaker tends to be recognized and seen as a wise person and maybe even a savior of sorts to be able to save us from the conflict. But when you look at the two words that make up our compound word peacemaker, the first is shalom. And we've talked about this over and over again, that shalom doesn't simply mean the absence of conflict. In fact, it's included, but sort of as a byproduct. Because shalom is the greatest amount of health and healing and connection and community and prosperity that is possible in a person's life. That's why in Hebrew and Aramaic, it's used as the greeting, shalom, shlama, both hello and goodbye, like aloha, same idea. You're wishing the person the greatest amount of resources and health in their lives. That's shalom. And maker, lavde in Aramaic, doesn't mean one action, one spectacular action, it's referring to regular actions. And if you go into the roots, what do you see? You see images in the roots of this word of planting and tilling and harvesting. We're right back to the agricultural metaphor of the subsistence gardener. It's about action that someone does regularly showing up day after day, dedicated and consistently working for the greatest amount of health and peace 
and connection possible in their circle of influence. That's the peacemaker. Same exact image taking us right back to the subsistence gardener or the farmer. Now, when you think about our culture, we're kind of a bucket list kind of people. We have a bucket list sort of mentality. Maybe the bucket list is our main metaphor sometimes for life. You hear people wanting to, they have a bucket list, all these things that they want to do before they die. You know, it's usually going traveling. It's maybe doing an extreme sport. It's something. Maybe you want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Maybe that's on your bucket list. You know. Now, if you're really a mountain climber, it's something you're training for all the time. It's something that you're doing all the time. If you go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro once, you're sort of really a tourist. You're not a mountain climber. And the truth of the matter is, we are not defined by the things we do just once. We're defined by the things that we do every single day, day in, day out, the things that we just can't wait to get to in the morning. And even if we feel we don't want to get to them anymore, we show up anyway because it's who we are. That's what defines us. We want to keep looking to the big things, the spectacular things, the big score, that 17-year-old hacker, make the big score. Or the big revelations, if we're talking spirituality here. We want to get the big download. We want to have the prophecies. We want to have all this stuff. We're back to a Las Vegas metaphor. But we're not defined by what we do once or the spectacular things. We're defined by what we do every single day. To show up every day, to do the things that peace really requires, the connection and the service, to admit that we are powerless. We are powerless to make becoming happen. We can't do that. We can't rush it. We can only show up to make the conditions right in our lives, in our hearts. But that's not under our control. It happens while we're sleeping. If we can start to live this way, it'll keep us grounded now as gardeners, as brides, as servants, but containing and retaining all of the wonder and the delight of the child at the first signs of growth that he or she would see when that first blade pops up above the ground. That sense of wonder when we awake and see that everything is connected. Kind of like a child at Christmas morning coming down to open all those presents that kind of wonder connected to that kind of discipline, willingness to do the insignificant things and just show up day after day after day. Do we want to live the good life? Do we want to live our life well? We need to change our metaphor. And we need to identify the metaphor that we're using. We need to move from Las Vegas to Piedmont, and then we need to understand how we balance the two to live simply but live consistently at the same time. There was a line I heard, practice slow, learn fast. I think that's pretty good. Can we learn to live slowly, simply, but with always the understanding of the suddenly that can happen at any moment that can change everything. That's kingdom. 
that's where Jesus is trying to take us. In a life like that, lived like that, there's always a sense of wonder and anticipation, even in the most difficult moments. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lengths that you have gone to try to get this across to us. Thank you for every model in our lives. Thank you for every teacher. Thank you for your word. And thank you for Jesus' constant actions and attention to every detail of his way. Help us to be as detailed as consistent, as disciplined. Help us to let go of the need for the big score. Help us to let go for the need for a big revelation, the need even to be recognized for the things that we do, that we can just show up because we know it's where we belong and we are increasingly understanding it's who we are. Help us to be farmers and brides and children, and shepherds, and fishermen. Help us to find our metaphor that allows us to get up each day and see the connectedness of you and everything. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.